Well, good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you. If you're here because you know the guys getting baptised, it's fantastic to, that you're with us. And I'm going to speak for about an hour. I know it's, it's being here a while. You're not laughing because you think it could be true. Anyway, so the other day, my my wife says to me, she says, because my son had got an inset day, she said, I've booked you to take our son Theo to get his eyes tested. It's a big responsibility, folks. And that always comes with some degree of trepidation because I know after I've been to see the optician, and there's some, there's, there's some kind of stuff we, we have to work, we're working with the optician on, there's exercises we have to do to help Theo's eyes. I know that she's going to ask me when I get home all the details and all the feedback that the optician has given. And you know, I'll never remember. I just said, she'll say, what, what did the optician say? And I said, his eyes are okay. <laughs> well, what did they say about this or that? I, I don't know, I forgot to ask. And, oh. So coming out of the optician, and I was thinking, now what, what, was it, what is it that we have to do? What did he say? What medical terminology did he use that I've totally forgotten? And as I'm walking down, I've got my youngest in the pushchair, and my son's, and he's doing this funny dance. He's just, he's just starting to do a funny walk, and then as we get closer to a crossing, he's starting to do this kind of unusual dance, let's just say. And part of me is thinking, is he going to continue in this? Is it going to become more, this has just come from nowhere. And then he starts to sing the Macarena. <laughs> oh, the Macarena. And then he's starting to, he's really moving. I mean, he's really, and he's, and he's got, he's very flexible. And he's doing things with his hips that I cannot do, folks. He obviously doesn't get it from me. And he's really moving and he's singing the Macarena. And because we're next to the road, he's getting louder to counter the noise of the traffic. And part of me is like slightly embarrassed, but also really like, that is so cool. I wish I had that freedom of an eight-year-old to be able to sing the Macarena in Broomhill, a part of Sheffield that I don't feel comfortable at all singing the Macarena. And all of a sudden, as we're waiting for the traffic lights to change so we can cross the road, and it felt like an eternity when you've got somebody you know and love doing the Macarena, it really does feel like a long time. This man standing next to me, he's waiting to cross. Now, he's a builder. You can just tell Hive's vest, a well-built gentleman, shall we say. And he's, he, he's, he's kind of, he, he's, he's looking ahead. And then as my son is thinking the Macarena, he looks at him and he has a little smirk on his face. And as Theo keeps going, and then he looks at me as if to say, what is going on here? <laughs> and, then we're, we're, and then the lights change and he is dancing like uh, oh, the Macarena, he, he's giving it large as we cross. I don't know what happened, but I was just, I was mildly embarrassed. And yet also looking at him thinking, I just don't have that level of freedom to dance like that in public. I don't know whether you do. I don't know whether it's something that you do when you're waiting to cross the lights and you sing the Macarena just to kill the time. I don't know whether, some, who do that? I bet you do in the balcony, don't you? Yeah? No? Rashani, I bet you do. I bet you love it when you... Yeah? No? At the back, do you do the Macarena? No? No? Okay, I'm just like, what's he talking about, this guy? Who'd, I mean, who dances in public like that? Unless you may be inebriated, in which case you don't want to make that confession. I appreciate that, because we're in church on a Sunday. Well, maybe you've done it in the past. But we're thinking today about the most... Probably the, the most famous king of Israel that ever lived, a man called King David. 
And if you were to visit Israel today, you would see he, uh, memorials to him or, or hospitals or schools or universities or any kind of civic life named after King David, one of the most influential people who has lived. In fact, today, Pentecost, it's estimated 2 billion Christians globally are going to be celebrating the sending of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And the chances are, if they're going to sing, because Christians believe that singing is a significant part of how we express our devotion and love to God, there's a very good chance they're going to read a psalm, and there's a very strong chance that that particular psalm was written by King David. He has influence the Jewish world and the Christian world, probably in the most phenomenal ways. And what we're going to be thinking about today as we journey, and this is our final, our final session, in the three talks about what it means to minister to God's presence. We're looking at King David, and King David dances, not even like the Macarena. He dances in the most profoundly beautiful undignified way before the presence of God. And we're going to ask a couple of questions. So why does he do it? What does it mean? And what is so significant about that moment on this day of Pentecost and specifically for our city and for our area at the moment? That is what we're thinking of. So if you've got a Bible, if you would jump to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're looking at what it means to minister to God's presence and we'll We'll think about that in just a moment, and we're going to look at verse uh, chapter six, two Samuel chapter six, verse twelve. We're reading through to twenty-two. Now, King David was told, "The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God." So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They bought the ark of David and set it in its place nearby the tents that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. All the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Now, that is some serious feedback. And this is his response. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people 
I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. Amen. It is an unusual story, folks. There's no, there's, no, there's no denying that. And it's worth just painting a little bit of picture, giving some context, because I think the context makes some of what we've just heard make a little bit of sense. So if you remember last week, we had a guest speaker, John McGinley, who did an amazing, he did an amazing talk. And if you missed it, it's on YouTube, SDC Sheffield. You'll see John's talk, absolutely fantastic. And he described in some detail, has some pictures, what, what the ark of the covenant is. But let me just give a big picture why it's significant and what it means. The people of God, when God called his people and he said, he gave this vision of creating a nation, he he was speaking to a, a relatively small, insignificant country in the Middle East. It wasn't as powerful as the nations around it. It, it didn't have as, as much impressive military might. It wasn't, it wasn't as advanced as some of the ancient, the ancient kind of civilizations like, like Egypt. It, it wasn't. And so when God spoke to them, that the one thing he says is that, 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 that tend to and love and honor my presence. If you go where I go, you'll be okay. And it's this story we see repeated throughout the scriptures, through the arc of scripture, that God chooses often the things and the people that we would never, ever choose, the people that we would ignore. And yet God takes hold of them and he says, if, if I put my spirit in you, if I make you become more like Jesus, you can do the things that I'm asking you to do. And so, so Israel, this nation, is birthed with an understanding that it is totally and always dependent on God's presence. And as it's dependent on God's presence, it becomes aware of its own weakness. And as Israel is more aware of its weakness, it hungers for God's presence. And King David was a man who loved God. He loved God. He's known after a man after God's own heart. And the the leader before him was King Saul. And King Saul was a man of strength and didn't necessarily rely on the presence of God. But yet when David becomes king, one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to bring the presence of God into the city of David, into Jerusalem. And the reason that he wants to do that is he wants to say to all of Israel, All of this nation is dependent on him. And so here's the problem. He's got to get the presence of God, which is contained in an ark, which is wood made of gold inside and out. It's created by Moses. You can't go near it. You can't touch it. Well, that's a problem when you've got to transport the thing. And he's got to get it from from right on the borders of Israel. Because if you remember last week, the Philistines nicked it. And it went really bad for them, and they discovered you don't mess with the presence of God. And then what they did is they dumped it just inside the borders, and they did a runner. And so what happens in the earlier part of chapter 6 is that, 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 that David gets 30,000 men, soldiers, and they go down, and they find it, and they put the ark on the back of a cart. 
pulled by oxen. Now, the thing is, oxen, you can't ride them. They, they walk and they, they do their thing and they're going along. And there's this man called Uzzah. And what happens is he is the cart leader. And the cart, they, it wouldn't be a very quick thing at all, but they're going along, they're going along. And all of a sudden, the ark slips off the carts and Uzzah reaches out to it to catch it. And he's killed. Dead. Now, can you imagine? There's thousands and thousands. Think how many people are going to be traveling tomorrow to Wembley. It's about four people. Actually, there's not many Sheffield Wednesday fans here, is there, folks? But anyway, God bless you. We're praying for blessing. It's all good. And so can you imagine the, the throngs of people and all of a sudden, the music and the dancing and the singing, it just stops in absolute... What? He dies. And it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because you think, well, how does that work? How, why, would, why would God do that? And, it's, it, and, and when people read these passages, right, they're skeptical about them. And they think, well, how can a good God kill somebody just for it's just an innocent mistake, isn't it? It's just, you know, he's, he's trying to do a good thing. His eyes trying to do a good thing. He's trying to stop the, he's trying to catch the ark as it's falling to the ground. And he reaches out and he dies. Doesn't make any sense. But if you step back and you step back and you step back and you look at the bigger picture, you realize that whenever God describes the ark, whenever God describes his presence, in the context of the Old Testament, it's always with shed loads of strings attached laws. And here's the thing. The reason that Uzzah dies is because as the ark is falling to the ground, heading into the dust and dirt... He thinks that he is better than the dust and the dirt. He thinks he's okay. And what happens is, what we do know is from the understanding of Jewish history is that if anything, the presence of God shows us that none of us are okay. For a priest to enter the Holy of Holies, they had to do so much ritual. They had to like clean themselves. They had to fast all kinds of stuff. I mean, like even like things in the bedroom. They had to not eat some foods. It was like, oh, my goodness. And then, and, and so it was a big deal to enter the Holy of Holies. You have to have a rope around. Oh, what a palaver. And the reason he reaches out, because he thinks, if I catch it, at least it doesn't fall on the dust. And there's a reality there that's, that, that, is, that is terrifying, that, that none of us can come into the presence of God. And that's really bad for business in this culture at this time. None of us can walk into his presence. He's too holy. And often I think in our type of church, we just kind of chill into church, oh, in the presence of God. But, you know, to the Jewish hearers, they'd be like, oh, my goodness, it's the presence of God. They couldn't even go near it. He says, oh, God, he's so holy. He's so powerful. We can't even look at him. He's just... That's the context. And Uzzah reaches out and he touches him and, and he dies. And he falls into that trap that we can all fall into, which is, you know, I'm okay. I'll live a good life. I'm a moral person. I'm not, I'm not fiddling the books. I'm not dodgy. I'm a good person. And I'm a good person compared to the non-good people. And I'm a good person because I vote a certain way. I'm a good person because I don't vote like them. I'm a good person because I drive an electric car. I'm a good person because I'm eco. Or I'm a good person. I do anything that, that, that somehow we think we can earn salvation or we think we're, we're better than somebody else because we all do it. 
And there's this moment as, as the ark falls. They leave it with this guy called Obed-Eden. Can you imagine that? They would come to your house and say, it's fallen on the ground. We can't leave. We can't do anything with it, but we're just going to leave it with you in your house. Is that all right? And Obed-Eden says, well, what do I do with it? Just don't go near it and don't touch it. Whatever you do, you can imagine just in the corner. Okay, can't even go near it. Don't touch it. Whatever you do. And word gets to David that Obed-Edom, he's seen untold blessings. And so he knows he needs to go back. And there's this beautiful moment where David says this, David was afraid of the Lord that day after Uzzah died. In fact, he says, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that, call, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. And then what happens is is that that David comes to this this absolute moment in his life where where he realises that actually he can't take the ark. He can't do it. He realises that he's not good enough. He's, He's not worthy enough to go into the presence of God. And then David goes back and he looks at all the laws around the ark. And then what we see is this, is that David, David he, he, he goes to get the ark because he's, he's begun to realise what it is he needs to do. And then there's this amazing thing that David does. And there's three things that we can learn from this moment. David, David realises that he cannot, in his own merits, go and take the ark. He just can't. It's this kind of kairos moment, the reality of his, like somebody holds up a mirror to his life. He's like, I can't do this. And so what he does is he takes the posture of humility and he realizes that you serve the ark, this box that contains the presence of God. It doesn't serve you. We serve God. He doesn't serve us. We don't get to tell him what to do. David has this moment. So do you know what he does? He takes off his royal robes. He takes off everything that identifies him as a king. He takes off everything that that anybody seeing him would recognize his robes, his wealth, his stature and his belonging. And he wears a priest's ephod, a priest's kind of inner garment. The Levites were a group of priests and only they could go near into the presence of God. So David, he humbles himself of all his finery of office and he just wears this humble priest's ephod. And you know, some people say that it didn't fit very well. And so when he's leaping and he's dancing, he probably exposes himself. Not ideal in any way, shape, or form, but it goes, it illustrates the point, the extents to which he is prepared to humble himself in the presence before, before the presence of Almighty God. It's an amazing picture. And then he begins to dance. He begins to dance, and in fact, um, I'm not going to do it, or maybe should, but apparently it's what it says in the Hebrew, he actually begins to swirl around. How he didn't fall over, I don't know, but he's beginning to swirl and swirl, and the drums are beginning to dance, and he is taking the posture of a priest, which means he's coming before the Lord Almighty, and he's saying, you are God, 
I am just. You are the you are the creator. I am the creature. You are infinite. I am not. I am becoming before you. And he's dancing, and it's this ritualistic dancing. It looks absolutely crazy. And he offers a sacrifice of praise. He brings to God honor, not comfort. You know, worship and praise is physical. It isn't just. It's physical. It's physical. It's, it's passionate. It's public. And it's prophetic. Now you might think, well, that's okay, because he was from the Middle East. But I am from the West Midlands. And we do not do shows of public emotion. Ever. You might say, well, I'm from north and we're well hard. And I never do that. Or maybe from the south, you guys are lost. I'm kidding. But here's, 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 here's David who is he's surrendering all of the entitlements of, of, a, of a king and taking up the posh of a priest. And a priest serves God. And he's stepping into a long line of priests who surrender themselves in God's presence. And David dances and dances and dances and dances and the drums are playing and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And this time the ark is not on an ox, it's carried. They've gone back to exactly as it should be moved by, by two people, two Levites with two bits of gold and they walk in every six spaces. Just think, one, two, three, four, five, six. And then they stop. And they stop and then they make a sacrifice and it's a burnt offering, which means all of the choice meat is burned up. And before it's burned up, what happens is, is that the priests would stand and lay hands on the animal and they lay hands on the person who has done something because that person cannot save themselves. They cannot make their, their, themselves right. They cannot change their own hearts. And that's what David has personally experienced, what he saw when Uzzah was killed for touching the ark. And every few paces, they would make a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is the priest taking the sin from one person and placing it on the animal. And then the animal then has to be sacrificed to deal with the sin. And it's the foretaste of Jesus who hangs on the cross and takes all of the stuff that we have done so that we can be free. It's what we heard today from Daniel and with Debbie as they talked about God's saving activity in their lives. And David's response, response to God is in who God is, not how we feel. I don't know how, when, 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 when you think about worship and praise, how do we respond to God? Is it based on how you feel? Or is it based on who he is? And that doesn't mean you need to go nuts and crazy. This is not a kind of polemic for charismatic Pentecostal worship. But it's something deeper of a heart posture that we take when we come into the presence of the Lord. It could be sitting in silence on your knees in like some of the traditions of other churches that are so rich that can teach us so much. Some of the contemplative traditions are so powerful. What is the heart posture that we take as we come into the presence 
of the living God? Do we come into the presence of God for our own ends or for bring glory and blessing to him? Do we, like David, bring a sacrifice of praise when life feels so unbelievably hard? My own season a couple of months ago when, when I, was, I was off work with a, a burnout, there was times when I just, I, I couldn't have done what David did. And sometimes it was just hard just to be. And as somebody, a wise person once said to me, some, heard somebody say, if you have wise voices in your life, you make wise choices. And somebody said, you just come into the presence of God and you say, God, you are God, I am not. Just be in his presence. And the reason that David begins to dance is because he says to Micaiah, he says, I am called, I am chosen. It's not based on his performance, it's based on who God has called him to be. We also know from David's life as we journey through Psalm 23 that in the intimate places with God, David has encountered his presence, which gives him the public confidence to display who God is. What does it mean? It means that David doesn't give a flying fig what people think of him. It's a Greek word, two Greek words, flying figs. Because he lives for him. He doesn't live for approval. Like sometimes it's so tempting, is it not to do stuff or to live our lives? It's what Proverbs calls the fear of man, which will prove to be a snare. And it means like this, if you're faced with a choice, your immediate thought is, well, what will they think? Or something happens in your life, you think, well, what are they going to think? Well, how does this look? It's like this internal branding that you have to manage your image. And David's surrendered all that. He's given that up so that he can find that place of true freedom. See, true freedom, culture will say, will come within as you discover yourself. But for David, true freedom comes when he discovers who God is and who he is in relation to God. So David is walking in a freedom that comes from being chosen. He's not thinking, what are they going to think? What's the perception? That is often associated with the religious mindset, which is what will they think? Sometimes we can be inhibited in the presence of God and in worship because our primary thought is, well, what are they going to think? What's my spouse going to think? Remember, a spouse isn't as passionate about Jesus as I am, or, or others, or what are my family going to think, or my friends going to think. I just want to go for it, Lord. But everybody else is very quiet. There's an inhibiting that happens through fear of man, and David doesn't have that. It is broken. There's this, uh, I remember when I worked in London at a church called Holy Trinity Brompton, there was an amazing lady called Emmy Wilson. She was such a godly lady. And she had been a, a, a matron in a hospital, and she had that vibe. just didn't mess. And the Holy Spirit, in, in 1994, there's a big outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that she responded was to neigh like a horse. I'll repeat that again. To neigh like a horse and to run up and down. Oh, it's crazy. And do you know what was happening? She felt that the Holy Spirit was, was breaking in her fear of man because it looked weird. And the more that God, she was released to do it, 
the more he was breaking fear about what other people thought. And do you know, she started a ministry of the Alpha Course in prisons. And do you know, she would never have done that if the Holy Spirit hadn't broken fear that was defining and restricting her life. Because she was a, had a very posh voice and God took her to the, broke, the hardest broken places with a posh voice and a posh background. I said, you're my person because I see your heart. And I'm going to release you to step into the place of your calling and your destiny and preach the gospel of Jesus. And it happened in the presence of God. He broke fear, which released her into her calling. David is stepping into his calling as one who is called to minister to the presence of God. Sin deadens us to the Lord's presence. It makes us indifferent. And yet David knows. David knows that, that, that he's loved, he's called, he's chosen, and he knows of freedom. And so in that place of freedom, he doesn't give a flying fig. He offers the Lord a sacrifice of praise. And there's a beautiful, really gnarly exchange between his wife, who's so embarrassed. And he says that amazing line, I'll become even more undignified than this. And if you've been in the church a long time, you'll remember a song that goes, I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. Yeah, you remember it? And then because I'll become even more undignified than this. And often people sing it like this, I'll become even more undignified than this. Some would say it's foolishness. Why does it matter today? Well, Pentecost. As David brings the Ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, Jerusalem becomes the place where people gather to celebrate God's presence. And if God's presence is in Jerusalem, Israel's like, it's all going to be okay because God is with us. And we know that the history of Israel, that doesn't quite work out like that. But Jerusalem becomes the foretaste of another person who comes into Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, who is the truest king, who takes that posture of humility, who, who steps into our world and says, you can never please God, so I'm going to take the place that belongs to you. And so you now, when, when, when God, if those of us who know Jesus and are acceptance of our life, when, G, when God sees us, he sees his son. Because he stepped in to be the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And then after the resurrection, 50 days later, God pours out his spirit. Where? In Jerusalem. And where people have always been drawn. Is it centripetal or centrifugal that goes in? What is it that goes in? Is it centripetal? Fugal? Which? Petal. Is it centripetal? That money on your education was well spent. Can I just say that? It's the people of God were drawn into Jerusalem. And then the Spirit of God falls in power. And they're sent out from Jerusalem. As people who carry his presence. His presence was contained to a building. But now it's in the heart of every believer. That is the Spirit of God. We are a temple to his holy presence. To his Holy Spirit. 
and the, the Pentecost as the Spirit of God is poured out and different languages are spoken. It's a sign that God is speaking to people from different places around the world and he sends us out to go make disciples of all nations, carrying his presence. And right now, our community needs to know something of the presence of God, something of the presence of the eternal city where there is no stabbings, there is no gangs, there is no drug wars, turf wars, COVID, anxiety, mental health. That is the citizenship, folks, that we belong to. And what it is we're going to do when this gathering finishes in a few moments is that we're going to gather outside. We're not going to rush. We're just going to gather outside. We're going to carry a wooden cross, and we're going to carry it up into the heart of our community to where a 17-year-old lost his life. And we're going to place that cross, and we're going to look stupid. Because I can't sing. You saw me at karaoke on the weekend away. You think, no, it's absolutely true. But what's going to happen is we're going to stand. We're going to sing a song called Amazing Grace. We're going to sing the story of our story of grace in our lives and in our hearts. That is the song that rose up over Jerusalem at Pentecost. A new sound was birthed. And we're going to go from here. And it may be weird and it may be a bit clunky. It might just be me, Heather, and maybe Joel with his white trainers. I don't know. But we're just going to sing the song of amazing grace, the story of our salvation, the story of the Spirit over our community and our nation at this time to say that we are citizens of two cities, this one and the one that is to come. And we believe he's going to make everything new. And we are here at this time to ask for his presence to break into the darkest places of our cities, which are encroaching into our community. And we do it with the posture of David that says this, the ark is never for us. The presence of God is not just for us. This isn't just for us, folks, but it's all for him. And we do it the posture of humility. Let's stand.